Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half. I'm Tom Gatti, I'm Culture Editor of The New Statesman. Usually what happens on this podcast is that I'm joined by my colleague Kate Mossman and we have a sort of ramble around the terrains of pop music, film, television and books. Sometimes we have people on to interview. Recently I've spoken to Philip Pullman and George Saunders just after he won the Booker Prize. This week Kate's not around and instead we have a special edition on the Goldsmiths Prize. The Goldsmiths Prize is a really important prize, I think. It was launched in 2013 in collaboration with the New Statesman with the idea of rewarding fiction that breaks the mould or extends the possibilities of the novel form. I went along to Goldsmiths last night to meet the six shortlisted authors and they had a quick chat with me and, and read little sections of their novels. So you can think of this podcast a bit like one of those old listening booths in HMV that I used to spend so much time in flicking through tracks, choosing which albums are worth buying. This can give you a little uh, consumer guide as to which, which of these novels might be worth following up on. The winner is announced on November the 15th. Past winners of the prize have included Ali Smith, Kevin Barry, Mike McCormack. The first year was won by Ema McBride, who I suppose has become a bit of a totemic figure for the prize in that that novel a girl is a half-formed thing took nine years to find a publisher was eventually picked up by this tiny norwich imprint called galley beggar press won the goldsmiths prize then went on to be picked up by the bailey's prize published by faber and Ema mcbride has now gone from someone whose book was deemed too awkward too difficult to publish to someone who's got a major career with thousands of readers so that's the, the sort of thing that the Goldsmiths Prize can do. The six writers that you're going to hear from on this podcast are, in the order that they're going to appear, Will Self for his novel Phone, Sarah Baum for A Line Made by Walking, Kevin Davey for Playing Possum, Nicola Barker for H-A-P-P-Y, and yes, that does spell happy, but when she reads the title, she pronounces it H-A-P-P-Y, John McGregor for Reservoir 13, and Gwendolyn Riley for First Love. To start us off then, Will Self on his novel, Phone. 
Phone is the third volume of my trilogy, which I call the Umbrella Trilogy. It began with my novel Umbrella, which was published in 2011. So I've been working on the trilogy for a long time. All three novels link together mass psychopathology, new technology, and warfare. Uh, and each novel is a different iteration of these ideas in a different era. Umbrella covers the first war, Shark, the second novel, the second war, and Phone is centered around the post 9-11 conflicts and specifically the Iraq war. The two latter novels of the trilogy came to me in more or less as a pure donne after I'd finished Umbrella. All three novels share this strange, meandering narrative line that moves in and out of different consciousnesses. In Phone, we have four characters. Zach Busner, the maverick anti-psychiatrist who's been with me now in all my fiction since 1991. His daughter-in-law, Camilla, who's a troubled woman with an autistic child. And two lovers. One, Jonathan Daath, who's nicknamed The Butcher, is a MI6 officer, and his long-term lover is Colonel Gawain Thomas, a tank commander in the British Army, and, and both of these men are heavily closeted gay men. Other than that, I'd have to say phone is quite difficult to summarize. There is a, a kind of espionage plot in there connected to the so-called dodgy dossier that took Britain into the Iraq war, but in all honesty, you have to follow that convoluted line of narrative through all 512 pages to get the best of that. It's a fresh morning for June, and standing at the dropping-off point, sucking on a final gasper, the butcher feels goosebumps on his recently showered skin and the crepitation of his kippered lungs. It's always been a problem, dressing for these sorts of trips ones in which he'll traverse 20 or 30 degrees Celsius in less than 24 hours. Squinting towards the low rise of the Chiltern Hills through his Marlborough smoke, he smiles wryly, remembering the reversible jackets and other sapper-esque stratagems he'd adopted as a young intelligence branch officer. No need for that malarkey nowadays. Besides, there are some occasions on which it's best to be yourself, be spontaneous. I'm a novelist because I think the novel form is endlessly protean and capable of being adapted. I'm amazed at how it's settled into such an arid classicism for the most part. If you look back to the dawn of the novel, you see fantastic levels of experimentation before it becomes kind of crystallized in the second half of the 19th century. So for me, the novel form is synonymous with possibility. I think in this novel and in the three volumes of the trilogy, what I've tried to do is to use the novel form itself to reflect the impact of digital technology. So, you know, of necessity, that's an innovation that really couldn't have occurred before the last decade or so. So yes, I think the novel remains responsive and a very good medium because of its diacritical aspect. It can comment on itself within itself, which very few mediums can do. You know, it's very unsatisfying 
breaking the fourth wall on stage or in film. It always feels contrived. In the novel, it can be effortless. So I think it remains absolutely fit for this purpose. My name is Sarah Ball, and my book is A Line Made by Walking. The title is named for an artwork by Richard Long from 1967. It's one of roughly 70 artworks that are described by the narrator throughout the novel. And the narrator is a recent graduate who is struggling to be an artist or struggling with the idea of becoming an artist. She's living in a bedsit in Dublin City when uh, she experiences something of a, a nervous breakdown, the, the catalyst for which is a, a scene close to the end of a Werner Herzog documentary, Encounters at the End of the World, in which a deranged penguin breaks away from the flock and uh, runs towards the mountains to, to certain death. At this point, she just lies down on her bedroom floor and kind of can't get up again. She then drops out of her ordinary life and goes to live in the bungalow where her grandmother died three years previously. And the bungalow is very rural. It's on the market. It's empty. Um, it's on this hill with a, a solitary wind turbine alongside it and a daffodil farm on the opposite side of the valley. She spends a summer there and the novel takes place over the course of the summer. She drifts and she wallows and she tests herself on the artworks in order to, to find meaning, I suppose. The Richard Long artwork, A Line Made by Walking, became the title because I suppose it has particular resonance with the themes of the novel. It's about searching and repetition and where we're going and what we've left behind. My grandmother died during a gloomy October, as one ought, three Octobers ago. On the night she died, the tale of a hurricane made landfall. It was called Antonio and had travelled all the way from Bermuda. It felled a tree which dragged down a wire and put out the lights across half the parish. Then the tree lay wretched on the ground, strangled by electric cable and blocking the road which led up the hill to her bungalow. My mother and aunts were trapped inside, but I wasn't there and mum didn't phone until a couple of hours later. I was at work in a contemporary art gallery in Dublin, painting over the previous day's scuff marks as I did every morning, transforming the tarnished white into brilliance again. Even though I had been expecting the call, I didn't pick up immediately. Even though I had been expecting my grandmother to die, I couldn't believe it might happen in the morning. For several rings, my polyphonic Radinsky march echoed irreverently around the exhibition space. When at last I answered, my mother confessed she hadn't called me straight away, and so my grandmother died in the night, after all, as one should. No change in the light. A temporary sleep becomes permanent. Antonio passed on, and men from the county council came in their dump truck to clear the road. By the time my fiesta climbed her hill, there were only broken bits of tree left scattered and a great wiggly hole in the earth where it had stood. I stole a branch from amongst the mess. I stole a branch because I loved that tree. I loved that tree because it had acknowledged my grandmother's radiant yet under-celebrated life by momentously uprooting itself. I didn't set out thinking, oh, I'm going to take creative risks. But my background is sculpture. I went to art school, like Frankie. I studied a fine art, but I ended up in the, in the sculpture department. And when it came to writing, 
I suppose I applied, like I've never studied literature. I've did study creative writing, but I think of novels as projects. Not so much with my first novel, I suppose I was trying to write something more classically novel-like. But I think with the second one, I kind of shed the pretensions of being a writer a little bit and, and went back to what I knew, which was the building of projects. And so I was thinking about the novel as a series of vignettes, I suppose. I was interested in the way a troubled mind slips and the things that it settles on. But I was also thinking of it in terms of a thing that I could take bits out of and put elements back into. And I was kind of, I suppose, guided by... I didn't think of it as, you know, as, as being all about form because I really wanted people to care about the character as well because it's the same thing when you make a sculpture. You really want people to, to want to, to look at it and to, and to stay with it. And I wanted it to be the same with the novel. So it was important to me to write a believable character that goes on a, a believable journey, but also to build a thing, <laughs> to build a thing that came together into a cohesive whole, as opposed to write a beginning, middle and end. So I really wasn't thinking about plot or a story, and I'm, I'm glad that it pushed boundaries, but I wasn't, I mean, with the images as well, I wasn't thinking, I'll, I'll, I'll put this in so it will seem like more of an experimental novel, the images came first and made complete sense. Um, because when I write, I'm always thinking, I think of an image and then I describe the thing that I'm thinking of, the scene or the object or the mannerism or whatever it is. And then that's how I write, you know? So I start with the image and then I just describe it and that's writing. So with the images going back in, it kind of made sense. It was where it began. I'm Kevin Davey, and I'm the author of Playing Possum, which is an experimental text about an American poet called Tom, who takes part in a violent incident in London, after which he flees the capital. It's 1922, a time of strikes and unrest, so he only gets as far as Whitstable, where he stays the night. Whitstable is a town in which I live and moved to more than 10 years ago. And when I first arrived in the town, I did what I thought everybody did. I read about 50 years worth of the local newspaper. I was also reading a great deal, as I've always done, uh, about T.S. Eliot, and particularly at that time about Ezra Pound, and I was working my way through the cantos. And I had a choice. I thought... I could write a local history, I could write a fairly scholarly book on T.S. Eliot, but I didn't want to write traditional criticism. Uh, I didn't want to write a traditional local history book. And I was walking through the town, to and from the railway station, passing through newspaper stories from more than 90 years ago, passing through tea-coloured postcard pictures of the town in the 1920s. And the two narratives began to merge. Uh, and that was wonderful because I knew I had a problem to solve, how to tell the two stories simultaneously. And from that point on, actually, it was rather easy because I had a form to find, a problem to solve, lots of material, lots of ideas. I was able to make connections between the town's history, the town's uh, cinemas, the town's entertainments, the fact that in 1922 a silent movie was being shot in the town, the fact that these were the years of T.S. Eliot's writing of the wa Wasteland with Ezra Pound's very uh, 
uh, intrusive and creative hand playing a major part. And I knew that I could put together quite a good story bringing the two narratives together. Having said that, the book does celebrate the immersion of T.S. Eliot in the popular culture of his time, from Mary Lloyd through to silent cinema and the Hammersmith Palais de Danse. But I did think that that was becoming far too much of a uh, conventional approach to Eliot, who after all was a high church Anglican cultural theorist. So I was very much trying to defamiliarize very old notions of Tom with popular culture, but also to defamiliarize more culturally recent appropriations of him as a high-low pop cult mixer. Has to. Wants to. Six years later, in a confession of sorts, Thomas will say that any man might kill his wife. That will be long after his blooding tonight. Flicks or skidder? Screen or skank? Both, I think, don't you? He and Fanny visit a newly opened picture house in Chelsea. They spend an hour in Hammersmith's Palais de Danse, cajoled to the sprung floor by the jabbling horns of a jazzbone orchestra, the couple shimmy through the chinoiserie. Blasts of negro trombone assault the lacquered pillars. Paper lanterns glim to ragtime sacks. Table candles glow in southern scat. A hothead camera tracks their one step, lap by lap. Don't give the rhythm meaning, she laughs. We're here to get away from that. A clarinet percolates in copper plate, copulates in puckered bass. Let's dance, perk, perk, all night, purple perk. Our last purple urkel, not so fast, pokalopal. In truth, it is Fanny who frisks, with powdered and fawning instructors, with captains stalking bored spouses, with bachelors foraging for solvent quiff, in fact, with any floor flusher bold enough to ask for a caper, of which there are many. They're decent men, Tom, in the main. Decent men who enjoy dancing. I am a fan of the Goldsmiths Prize. It's, it's really very pleasing to have been selected for the shortlist, but I don't quite live up to the Goldsmiths programme in that the notion that the novel is full of uh, new creative forms new impulses and growth. I, un I understand the argument, to be, but to be perfectly honest, I think I ended up writing Playing Possum because I'd run out of contemporary fiction to read. I had the choice of rereading the whole of Claude Simon and Thomas Bernhardt and Gabriel Josipovich again, which is great and I will probably continue to do, or putting up and shutting up, really. You know, I, I, I felt that I had to, without much to follow, without much sense of a of peers or being part of a, a writing network, I'm a bit of an outsider, 
to that world. I haven't been on a creative writing course. I didn't have a publisher that was steering me towards a market niche. I was very headstrong and whimsical in choosing what to write about and how to write about it. And I did have a big problem of form, and I'll tell you what solved it. I had those two narratives I wanted to run together, Whitstable history in the 1920s, the labor movement, the rise of cinema, and some very complex questions of my own about T.S. Eliot. And that was quite a hard place to be in, but what solved it was discovering that a silent movie had been shot in the town. And once I got hold of some silent cinema conventions, actually, I, I romped home and uh, very glad to be part of that annual pile of Goldsmith shortlist books. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. I'm Nicola Barker, and my novel is H-A-P-P-Y. The book is set in the far, far distant future, where everybody is young, everybody is eternal, everybody is perfected, there is no God, and there is no narrative. There's no need for narrative, because we are perfected. We no longer, as a race, we no longer need to tell the story of ourselves. And we are expressed by the system which fulfills our need for identity and completeness. Within this beautiful world, unfortunately, 
is Myra A, who is the protagonist of the novel, and she suddenly feels compelled, even though she is perfected, even though she is whole, she suddenly feels compelled to tell the story of herself. And this is not encouraged, narrative is not encouraged in this world. Um, but it's not forbidden because everybody is free. Uh, but she feels compelled to tell the narrative of herself. And the novel is written in colour. And whenever Myra A expresses herself with emotion or says things that aren't completely in fitting with the system, the text pinkens and purples. And that's an expression of uh, breaches that are being made. And, and increasingly, this is what happens to the text. And Myra A is telling the story of herself, but it's not actually her own story, she realizes. She doesn't even know whose story it is. And eventually, the desire, the urge to narrate and to create a sense of self is what threatens to destroy the thing she loves most of all, which is the system which she believes in and which is perfect. That's basically the idea of the book. This is about, well, it's hard to describe, but this is a non-representative section of the book. It's about the sexuality of the inhabitants of the world of this book, who are called the young. The young are unafraid of intimacy because everything is known Everything is open, nothing is hidden, and we are no longer sexually driven. There is no need, there is no urge, no desperation, just calm. We are untroubled, we are free from desire. Over time, our bodies have become smoother. Our reproductive organs have shrunk and become neutral. Some of the young choose to advance this process chemically if it is considered appropriate by the graph, if it is considered better for them to do so. Others are encouraged to wait for this to happen naturally. This is good too. It is nice to be smooth. But we do not idealize smoothness. It shouldn't be considered a goal, the apex of anything, a state of perfection. It is simply an evolution Evolution is not a moral conundrum, a challenge, a dilemma. Evolution is not an emotional issue. It is a drab fact, a necessity, an inevitability. That is all. It is something natural. I'm not an, an intellectual writer. For me, fiction is fun. So I never consider things. I just don't consider things. I simply do them. So this book, I just finished another book and I was having a short break and I was in the middle of a much bigger book and I just suddenly started to write this book. It was just something I did for fun. And so I never think about the limits or whatever of the novel. It's just not how I work. And I think to consider that too much is to kill the urge to enjoy yourself and to feel free within the text. So I'm kind of an ignoramus when it comes to experimentation. If I do it, I just do it out of mischief. Or I just do it because I feel like doing it. I don't understand uh, like modernism and postmodernism. I mean, I just don't. It, it doesn't mean anything to me. And uh, it can't mean anything to me because I, I would just, I think it would stop the urge in me to be creative. I'm John McGregor and my novel is called Reservoir 13.
It's a novel which begins with the disappearance of a 13-year-old girl in a village in the Peak District in central England. And it begins with her disappearance just before New Year, and there is some investigation into her disappearance, and that investigation never goes away, but the novel carries on around her disappearance, and it carries on for the following 13 years, and it follows the lives of the villagers, and it explores what she's left behind, essentially. At midnight, when the year turned, there were fireworks going up from the towns beyond the valley, but they were too far off for the sound to carry, and no one came out to watch. The dance at the village hall was cancelled, and although the Gladstone was full, there was no mood for celebration. Tony closed the bar at half past the hour, and everyone made their way home. Only the police stayed out in the streets, gathered around their vans or heading back up into the hills. In the morning, the rain started up once again. Water coursed from the swollen peat beds, quickly through the cloughs and down the step paths which fell from the edge of the moor. The river thickened with silt from the hills and plumed across the weirs. The police arranged a reconstruction, bringing actors over from Manchester. There had been no leads and they wanted to make a fresh appeal. The press were allowed up to the hunter place and given instructions on where to stand and what to film. The day was clear and edged with frost. The press officer asked for quiet. The door of the barn conversion opened and a couple in their early 40s appeared, followed by a 13-year-old girl. It's funny because this is the book in which I stretched myself further than I have done before in terms of my writing technique and the kind of compositional approach. And yet on the surface, it's possibly one of my more traditional looking novels. It, it starts at the beginning and it follows these this cast of characters very kind of at a very regular pace through to, to the end. Um, and there's no there are no tricks with time, there are no tricks with perspective particularly. And yet beneath the surface there was a lot of play on my part, I guess. And a lot of that was to do with how I was putting the book together. And so the book was put together, I wrote everything out of sequence and then assembled it at the end. So all of the characters, all of the animals, all of the, the work routines, the seasons, all of those elements have, have pages and pages of text, which I wrote initially and kind of stacked up on one side of the desk and then took fragments from and cut and paste across this kind of grid that I'd made for myself of the, the 13 years and the 13 months. Um, and the effect of that is that I've ended up with essentially a series of non-sequiturs. So in each month you get a bit of storyline, a bit of character background, a bit about an animal, a bit about a bird, and there are no line breaks, there are no paragraphs, there are no careful directing the reader's attention from one to the next. It's just one damn thing after another. And that kind of happened by mistake while I was doing that composition. While I, 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 I took the elements I wanted in each month and kind of almost literally glued them to the page, assuming that I would then carefully arrange them and carefully do the paragraph breaks and carefully segue from one thing to the next. And actually, the rhythm of the non sequitur 
just sounded great on the page, and and it was a it was a happy accident. Um, so I guess it was experimental in in its best sense, in that it felt like it worked. But actually, by the time I'd finished all of that composition, to me it feels like quite a I don't know what the word is. It's not a bumpy piece of work. You know, it, it feels quite smooth and quite measured to me, uh, more so than my previous books. So yes, it felt innovative, and yes, I was surprised that it's ended up on the Goldsmiths shortlist. I'm Gwendolyn Riley. My novel is called First Love. It is a story of a young woman, youngish woman, mid-30s, Neve, who is sounding out her life, trying to work out exactly what kind of trap she's in, if she's in a trap at all. So one of the things, I don't know if it was key in the genesis of this book, but as I was writing it, I kept having Philip Larkin's poem Myxomatosis in my mind. What trap is this? Where are its teeth concealed? Just the idea of this person who's stuck in a certain situation. So she is thinking about the relationships that have made her who she is. Parents, her husband Edwin, an older man, first boyfriend who was an emo rock star, and um, her friendships. So she is, you know, with various degrees of profound exasperation, hatred, contempt, affection, you know, exploring these relationships, I suppose, and seeing, taking the lay of the land, maybe. I used to look at houses like this one from the train, Behind the ivy-covered embankment, their London brick, sash windows. That was on the Euston approach. The back of this flat, that is the bedroom, the bathroom, and Edwin's study, looks out on the overground line, just past West Brompton. I've been here for 18 months, but my boxes only recently came out of storage. Also in the consignment was my metal document case, half full of old papers, correspondence, a few photographs, I spent a long afternoon unpacking onto the new alcove shelves, deciding what to keep. When I first moved in, and before that, when I came to visit, I think I came three times, I'd watch for Edwin in the evenings, standing between the windows, eyeing the shadows out there. This is a short, curved terrace. Mullions and porch columns rib the way. The traffic might build at night, but the pavements are never busy. The procession was thin down from Earl's Court until at last there he'd be, blonde hair poking from a black flat cap, grey overcoat flapping, his tatty rucksack on one shoulder. In his free hand, he always held a bottle by the neck, wrapped tightly in its striped plastic bag. Lately, it's the round of coughing in the hallway that lets me know he's home. I go out and meet him, we have a cuddle, and then I look at the standard while he gets changed. We don't talk much in the evenings, but we're very affectionate. When we cuddle on the landing and later in the kitchen, I make little noises, little comfort noises at the back of my throat, as does he. When we cuddle in bed at night, he says, I love you so much, or you're such a lovely little person. There are pet names too. I'm Little Smelly Puss before a bath, and Little Cleany Puss in my towel on the landing after one. In my dungarees, I'm You Little Herbert. And when I first wake up and breathe on him, I'm his little compost heap or little cabbage. Edwin kisses me repeatingly and with great emphasis in the morning. There have been other names, of course. 
I like to quote T.S. Eliot on the conscious problems of writing, where he says they're mainly quasi-musical ones. I think it's all unconscious and it's all to do with instinct. So uh, the idea of setting out to write a novel that's innovative would be a bit crazy. But then again, you don't sen set out to write one that's old hat, old games, or stale buns. Um, so I think all good writing is innovative. With this one, I mean, it, as people have pointed out to me, um, my novels aren't very different to each other, and yet I feel there's a progress. And with this one, I think I just, I'm just always getting closer to the heart of the trouble. So maybe this is more, you know, just getting nearer to what the one book that I need to write, I think, if it's a sort of incremental process. So I think I was, all the things that I've been, you know, monkeys on my back since I wrote my first book when I was 20, maybe I'm, you know, you're finally bringing, dragging them into the light a little bit with this book. So yeah, maybe the idea of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just all about instinct. And with this one, I did feel like I was finally getting to things that I might have hedged or left out before. I don't mean subject matter. What do I mean by that? Just the voice seemed a bit... I like the voice has evolved into something where it's the, the voice's sort of insight and competency has become double-edged in a way that's quite interesting because she can see what's going on. Where does that get her? Interesting, I thought. So those are the writers shortlisted for the 2017 Goldsmiths Prize. I have absolutely no idea who the winner will be, but we're going to find out on November the 15th. And then later in the month at the Cambridge Literary Festival, I will be doing an event with whoever wins the prize. So if you're within spitting distance of Cambridge, you might want to come and check that out. We'll be back next week with a more normal shaped podcast. Kate will be here. We're going to talk about Chris Morris's groundbreaking satire, Brass Eye, and the weirder end of film noir. If you want to get in touch in the meantime, I'm on Twitter at Tom underscore Gatti. And we will leave you, as always, with the angular post-jazz rhythms of Pistol Jazz. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.